Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. Thank you all very much for tuning in. Uh, before we get going, I'd like to wish a very happy birthday to a couple of people. Uh, first of all, one of my regular partners in crime on this show, Jeffrey Harris. His birthday is oh, in the immediate future. I don't want to give out anything too specific, but coming up, certainly. So within an appropriate time frame to wish him happy birthday. So happy birthday to him. Uh, second, to my mother, who turned 60 not that long ago. Uh, just a couple of people that I thought I should kind of mention that too. I promise I try to keep the sentimentality brief, you guys. I assume care very little, but not a knock on you guys. You come here for specific-centered material, not the ramblings of my brain. Well, the ramblings of my mouth through my brain. Anyway, so happy birthday to them. Anyone else out there who's having theirs around the same time, feel free to take this as well. Uh, congratulations on surviving for another year. It's not always as easy as it sounds to do that, is it? Right, on the agenda this evening, we have a review of last night, UFC on ESPN 14. UFC had a 15-fight card. 15. 15 fights. That ties... That either ties or exceeds the most. I think it ties UFC 2. <sighs> I don't know who thought that was a good idea. Because, man, did I not need a six-and-a-half-hour broadcast. Almost seven. So, we'll go through the fights, such as they were, the good, the bad, the ugly, a little bit of all of those last night. Uh, the UFC does have another event coming up this Saturday. They're back at the Apex facility in Las Vegas, Nevada. At least that's what's currently scheduled to happen, whether it actually goes through that way. Well, you know, who knows. A lot of stuff still up in the air, especially in certain states. Uh, Vegas, in particular being a giant hub and melting pot, a petri dish of different people coming for different reasons. Uh, Nevada is still open at the moment, though, and there does seem to be data suggesting that the uh, trends for a lot of the states that reopened, uh, testing, uh, testing for COVID is starting to come back a little bit more negative, a little bit more on the downturn. Whether that's lagging data, whether that's people deciding that they're willing to wear masks in public, uh, whether that's some other function of the growth rate uh, or of the, how the virus operates, I don't know. Uh, I do not know specifically. I know that's kind of what the data is showing at the moment. In another couple of weeks, it'll show, it could show something completely different. This could be a blip rather than a trend. I don't know. But I do know that I would not, i just put it this way, I would not be shocked if a big surge happens over the next few days and Nevada just shuts down again. Wouldn't shock me. But right now they're still planning on going forward, so we will preview with the assumption that that's what's going to happen. Uh, then we're still dealing without a lot of news. Not a lot of stuff breaking, uh... A lot of the fights that have been made have already been made. A lot of people waiting. A lot of... There's not a lot of 
far-reaching announcements right now. You know, there's not a lot of, hey, in three months, we're going to have this. Uh, so it winds up being kind of a who's available at the moment, and we all get about two weeks to kind of wrap our heads around it. Uh, or they'll wait and then announce a bunch of stuff, and then announce, you know, eight events on a single weekend. And we have to kind of get through all that. So we'll see what's happened. Uh, all right. Let's just, I am flying solo in this particular episode, so let's jump into yesterday's event. Well, yesterday as I record this. UFC on ESPN 14. 15 fights, as I said. Little much. Little much. Could have done without a bunch of these, to be quite honest. Uh, but let's go ahead and start at the top. Your main event, Robert Whitaker defeats Darren Till via unanimous decision. 48-47 across the boards. There were... Everyone agreed on the first three rounds, uh, round one to Till, two and three to Whitaker, and then four and five is where things get a little dicey. Uh, two judges gave Whitaker the fifth, one gave Till, so one gave Till the fifth. Uh, the other, the one who gave Till the fifth gave Whitaker the fourth. So you get the same total scores, but um, I was. Doing this in real time, I was four, I was three to two for Whitaker, so I was forty-eight forty-seven. I gave Till the first and the fourth. The fourth is dicey. I don't disagree with anyone who gives it to Whitaker. Till had the singular big moment when he actually landed a combination of strikes, but he got out. Till was outworked and outstruck in, I believe, all five rounds. That's mitigated in the first by him dropping Whitaker with a really nice uh, intercepting elbow. And then, I mean, again, you drop somebody, you're going to, and then get some top position. You need a lot to come back from that, and Whitaker didn't get enough to get it back in the first. Then he, you know, dropped Till in the second to kind of return the favor. Uh, So, the right guy won, I think. I, what did I say technically? Darren Till has a bit of an odd reputation as a fighter that I'm not entirely sure where it comes from. Um, but which is to say the following. People think of Till as this very, very dangerous uh, finisher. The reality is that has not been the case in the UFC. Outside of the UFC, he did have several finishes. In fact, I think more finishes than decisions. But some of that is the reality of fighting outside the UFC when you are a talented guy full of potential and you're fighting people who are either at your same level of experience, uh, kind of career journeymen, just regional guys. You're able to do things that do not translate to the highest level. And that, again, to be very, very clear, that is not a knock on Darren Till. That is true of just about everybody. You see a lot of guys who are submission wizards at the lower level who come to the UFC and all of a sudden they're not... That that reputation does not follow them as they escalate in competition level. In the case of Darren Till, I would like to just so everybody knows... The man has two Finnish victories in the UFC. He has two. 
He has, I think, about half his fights in the UFC. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, he has, of his 22 fights, 10 of them have been in the UFC. He has two finishes. One of those is UFC debut. One of those against Donald Cerrone in 2017. I'm not saying finishing Cowboy is nothing. I'm saying when you're the size of Darren Till and fight like Darren Till and you're fighting Cowboy at welterweight, it's not that it's not an impressive name and it's not that it wasn't a very good finish, all things considered. But it does not make a pattern. And... Darren Till, while he does have power and he has very quick hands, is not the biggest finishing threat. He will finish you if you give him the chance. I don't mean to say that he's some... He's Again, he's not utterly incapable of it. But there's elements of how he fights that kind of minimize that potential in terms of raw finishes. If he doesn't damage you badly with one strike, he isn't really going to... Better way to say this. Darren Till's not much of a combination fighter. He throws one or two at a time. Be that a leg kick, be that a you know, paw down the hand, fire the straight left, show the uppercut. You know, he faints a lot, which is to his credit, and he throws a fair bit of leg kicks, but they're kind of just gauging, they're kind of just trying to score a little bit. If you're not really on the back foot reeling and covering up, he's not a comp he doesn't throw a lot of combinations. He just doesn't. Now, there's that might seem like just some damning indictment. It's as often as not either just a straight habit or a deliberate strategic choice. Sometimes the the habit of not getting into those prolonged exchanges doesn't leave you as vulnerable to pocket brawling, to counters get in and get out is a very very viable method of finding success in striking based combat sports. He is not the only one to have used it. He's not the only one to have used it successfully. He will not be the last one to use it successfully. It is just a choice that comes with you know, positives and negatives. One of the negatives of that is you tend to see him finish less at the highest level because guys at this level tend to have either the defensive acumen or just the chin to take the one or two that he occasionally lands and recover. Now, how that played against Whitaker wound up being he certainly landed blows, but ultimately he kind of got outworked. Now, that's down to a few different things. One of it is the style of Robert Whitaker. Whitaker is a fairly active fighter. Whitaker constantly looks for places to land offense from, and to both his credit, and again, this is not to say that is the ideal way to fight, that does... It can be be used against you. Anything you do can be. Nothing is perfect. So you can... So there are ways to kind of punish him for the style that he chooses to fight in. You saw Israel Adesanya do it very well. You saw Yoel Romero have success doing it. Um, in no, I mean, any time Whitaker, Whitaker you know, survived very well in those fights with Romero, especially the second. But if you look at how Romero was able to capitalize on, on those positions, he expects Whitaker to constantly be working, and then once you get a little bit of a read on that, 
he's there to be hit. Darren Till, if you look at how anytime Whitaker would blitz at him, Till wouldn't engage. He wouldn't stand his ground. He would wouldn't even just kind of do what Adesanya Adesanya didn't always stand his ground firm. He would slide back to avoid the blow, but be in position to counter. In the case of Darren Till, if Whitaker blitzed, he was gone. He was, you know, getting down behind his shoulder. He was looking to angle. He was looking to just avoid. Let's avoid this attack. Reset and start over. Now, again, I'm not. That's just a strategic choice he and his team made. And it's relative. It's kind of you know trying to build his, build his skills to be the best that they are. If he fights a certain way, brawling in the pocket and trying to stand your ground with a very very dangerous opponent like Whitaker is a bad idea. So he fought in a way to try and maximize his abilities. One of the things that seems to have done a fair bit of damage, Whitaker was now these two are in opposite stances. Tills a southpaw. Whitaker fought most of this orthodox. Whitaker will shift through on some of his punches, but he's doesn't spend a lot of time southpaw. Uh, Whitaker was landing some calf kicks to the outside, uh, to the to the lead leg. So instead of going inside into the you know, open part of the body, he was going around to the outside. Doesn't get as much power if you know your lead leg, but he was scoring constantly. And in the second round, I think it was, he landed a side kick to the knee of Darren Till that apparently did a lot of damage. Um, Till said he felt everything pop. Um, it And if your knee's gone like that, it seriously hampers what you can do. Doesn't mean you can't fight, doesn't mean you can't win. I mean, you know, Josh Emmett fought three rounds with a maniac in Shane Burgos and you know, with a destroyed knee. So it's certainly possible to continue fighting. But it is going to affect what you can do. Given how Darren Till fights, he does kind of need the mobility. He kind of needs that lead leg to be firm. He's not a big jabber, but he does drive through from his back leg onto his front leg in terms of shifting his weight when he throws the left. If that's not there, then a lot of the weight distribution goes off, a lot of the power goes away. So that seems so that seems to have played a role, and you Credit to Whitaker for doing it. I mean, he kicked Romero in the knee like that a bunch. I mean, Romero did it to him in their first fight. He returned the favor in the second. Uh, Till did it to Stephen Thompson in their fight. It, uh, that was actually one of the funnier things after the fact, was you know, Till coming out and saying, yeah, Whitaker destroyed my knee with those sidekicks. I kind of think they should be banned now. Uh, he was deliberately joking. Uh, it, it's... Those kicks to the knee like that, they, it's such an odd thing. Because, you know, if you come from a traditional, if you look at, you know, old school self-defense discussions and whatnot, the thought was, you know, if I hit somebody like that, then they're done. You know, it'll, and that's just not quite the case. It's, now, some of that data is, if we're talking about how it pertains to, uh, you know, prac- you know, I hate to say practical because that's the wrong way to look at it. The purely personal, non-sporting application of that technique is a little bit different, but it has shown that if you're like, it's shown two things: as that technique has kind of gained some prominence in MMA. One, it actually does kind of what it's what is advertised. It will mess your knee up. 
Jones messed up Rampage's knee with it in their fight, and Rampage's knee is still, if you listen to him, not quite the same. Thompson's it tilted at Stephen Thompson. Whitaker and Romero did it to each other. Uh, you know, here, Whitaker. It, so, it will do damage, and it is, it is consequential damage if it does damage. But it's not the immediately debilitating thing that again, a lot of people seem to have think seem to have either thought it was. I mean, I know there's a bunch of people who consider that technique to be dirty in MMA, which I just I find I disagree. I mean, let me put it like that: I disagree. It's not against the rules. I don't think it should be against the rules. It's just. And uh, a lot of the people, and some of the position that comes about from I don't want to, from, you know, I think they should be banned, is people not wanting to adjust to deal with them. That sidekick to the knee is not some silver bullet. It's not magic. You can deal with it. It's just a technique. There are plenty of ways to mitigate it. So, uh, it was, you know, uh, the clip that circulated afterwards of Whitaker when he heard that, you know, Till's knee was destroyed was just, oh, good, I should probably throw that kick more often. Uh, somebody mentioned that, yeah, he kind of, they told the story of Till joking about now wanting them banned, and Whitaker was responsible to kind of smile and shrug and go, yeah, I want soccer kicks back, and like, just, we all do, man. <laughs> I, I... The story of Robert Whitaker's career is going to be an odd one when it's finally told. Because the man was, for a significant chunk of time, the best middleweight in the world. It took him forever to get into the title picture for a variety of reasons. One being, at the time, the top of the division was fairly stacked. He just he went through a murderer's row of competitors. Then the title picture was kind of upended by Michael Bisbing and Bisbing's desire to not fight Robert Whitaker. Well, I shouldn't say this is only Bisbing. I don't mean to say that this is just him. I'm not accusing Michael Bisbing of all people of, you know, ducking somebody. Between Bisbing and the UFC, they had a preference for a second fight with Dan Henderson to try and capitalize monetarily. This is not anything I blame anyone for. There were also some injuries that went around to both Bisbing and Whitaker that kind of threw the timing into wonkiness again. Whitaker wins the interim title. And I think if Whitaker was healthy coming out of that fight, they might have just done Whitaker and Bisbing. Now, some of this might be my... uh, I might be getting the chronology mixed up a little bit here, too. They might have done that. They might have done uh, Bisbing and Henderson first. I think they did actually. I think they did Bisbing Henderson, which was a blatant cash grab that resulted in a pretty terrible fight that didn't even actually grab a bunch of cash. Then Whitaker destroys his knee in the interim title win while Bisbing's recovering from something that paves the way for Bisbing versus GSP in one of the. One of the most bizarre bits of matchmaking you could find. That said, Bisbing versus GSP did make a lot of money. 
Then GSP vacates and Whitaker is promoted. But there's this big, big stretch of time. If I don't know how many of you might remember this. Robert Whitaker was supposed to fight Michael Bisbing um, well before, uh, a little bit before Bisbing's kind of title shot. Uh, they were supposed to, I think, headline uh, an Australia card before, uh, again, about a year or so before Bisbang would wound up winning the title. I was going to pick Whitaker there. I uh, Whitaker before, when was it? I think about the time he beat Jacare. Because that was, that was kind of his big coming out party. He beat Derek Brunson before that. Good win. Then he goes out there and finishes Jockery. I think that's the point when he was the best middleweight in the world. Then he has injuries and layoffs and the two wars with Yoel Romero. And it, it it's just unfortunate that he was off for so long because he was the best middleweight in the world. And then by the time he came back from dealing with injury and illness and the whole nine yards, he ran, he ran into a phenom in Israel Adesanya, who's not only a phenom, but a just really, really terrible stylistic matchup for him. And then he's off for... Then he takes time away just to deal with burnout. Uh, if you believe him about that, and I'm willing to err on the side of what he says. And he he comes back. I mean, his win here was the first time... was his first win in over two years. He has the split decision win over Yoel Romero at UFC 225, June 9th of 2018. He doesn't fight again until October of 2019, when he loses to Adesanya, and then here July of 2020. The man went over two years between wins, and is probably the second best middleweight in the world. It is a... His career is going to be such a weird thing to kind of really try to hash out when it's all said and done. And it is not even close to all said and done. Uh, going forward for Whitaker, I don't know exactly what happens. I know there's been some noise about... I think in a, I think a rematch with Adesanya is just kind of a hard sell between Adesanya knocking him out cold and the performance here, which was a good performance, but a very tactical performance... And uh, again, this this particular performance is just not going to light anyone's fire about that rematch, just from the general populace. So I think he's probably going to need another one, assuming Israel Adesanya beats Paulo Costa. If Adesanya beats Costa, I think the Whitaker rematch is just kind of a tough sell at the moment. I think he needs another win. If Costa beats Adesanya without controversy. Big important caveat there. If Costa wins and there's no there's no caveats, there's no controversy, there's no asterisk, there's no nothing. I think you could in that case do Whitaker Costa. I think that's a very very reasonable thing to do. I'm a, I'm just a little bit less sure that we can get to Whitaker Adesanya off the back of this performance. Especially when you consider that middleweight is in a very good spot. Um, I, Jack Hermanson had a win not that long ago, and he said he wanted to fight the winner of this fight because the winner of this fight would get a, would after that fight be next in line. You got Jared Cannonier floating out there. 
Uh, he's still obviously very relevant. Uh, coming up this next week, we have a fight between Edmund Shabazian and Derek Brunson. Uh, those guys, those gentlemen are ranked 9 and 8, respectively. That's a very big fight. If Shabazian blows the doors off of Brunson, uh, he could be... I'm not saying they'd give him a title shot, but he's... He would be a very, very important consideration for the top of that division. So... Again, there's still a few things we need to see play out. I think again, if Costa beats Adesanya, clean. Uh, you could do Whitaker Costa, I think, and give it give Adesanya a a a rebound, not a soft touch rebound fight, but you know, not an immediate title rematch. I think that would be that's clearly very viable. Uh, as for Till, you know, he could fight. I don't know where he's going to wind up in the rankings after this loss. Um, he could fight the winner, uh, depending on how far he falls. If he, you know, I mean, him and Edmund Shabazian would be a really, assuming Shabazian wins, big assumption. Or him and Brunson, he could easily fight the winner of that fight, assuming the winner of that fight doesn't rock it up to you know, ahead of Till in the rankings. Um, you could do Till Uriah Hall. Uh, Hall's hanging around down, hanging around in the top ten. I think he's number ten. Yeah. Uh, you got Marvin Vittori, who might be do a bigger fight. Uh, so, if he's going, if he's willing to fight down in the rankings, because Till was five coming into this, he's going to drop from that. Hermanson will probably go ahead of him. Gaslam will fall lower. Then the winner of Shabazi and Brunson will probably take Till's. Will probably take Hermanson's spot at six. Uh, so, yeah, I imagine Hermanson will bump up to 5, Till down to 6, Gaslam will hang around at 7, then winner of uh, Brunson Shabazian will jump up to 6. So, if I had to guess. So, that so that does mean that, again, Till versus the winner of that fight, very, very viable fight. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly. There's still a lot of moving parts there, but... A uh, much-needed win for Whitaker. Uh, somebody else pointed this out on Twitter. I forget who. So my apologies. Middleweight champions in the UFC have not recent have not really hung around. And when I say hung around, I mean like looked good. Uh, you had Rich Franklin, who continued to hang around and be a competitive fairly high-level fighter after losing to Silva. But look at what happened to Silva after he lost. Silva kind of fell off a cliff. Then look at Weidman. Weidman had a couple of title defenses, takes a serious beating from Luke Rockhold, and then look what happens. I mean, Weidman... He's only got the one win recently, right? I think his only win recently was the uh, Gastelum win. Yeah, he is 1-5 and five in his last six, and he's been finished in all of those losses. So that's Rockhold, Romero, Musasi, Souza, Dominic Reyes. All stopped him. All with punches, too. Jeez, he, yeah. So, dramatic fall from grace, right? I think we can all agree on that. Then there's Luke Rockhold. 
who wins the belt, goes on to is then defeated by Michael Bisbing, gets a win, and then gets knocked out twice. Again, from a guy that we were looking at as the best in the world and looked really, really good. I mean, Rockhold's run in the UFC. He debuts in the UFC, loses to Belfort, goes on a tear. He just was smashing people. Uh, you know, smashes Philippou, finishes him, submits Boat, and he smashed him along the way. Submits Bisbing, sm- and, you know, kind of smashed him along the way. Submits Lyoto Machida, smashed him, and then smashes Weidman for the title. And then drops off a cliff. Then there's Bisbing, who wins the title, proceeds to have a terrible fight with Dan Henderson, where he are, I mean, <laughs> he nearly lost that fight. Then fights GSP. Not that he, again, he wins a round, but ultimately is bludgeoned and choked unconscious. Has an unsafely fast turnaround against Kelvin Gastelum and is knocked out. That leads to the promotion to champion of Whitaker, who thankfully at least seems to have, given how young he is, thankfully seems to have avoided the post-middleweight title crash and burn that has afflicted the last several champions. Uh, So, yeah, waiting to see what happens there, but he got a much-needed win. And... This is a very technical fight, a very tactical fight, but if you're into that kind of stuff, this was enjoyable. It wasn't a blood and guts firefight, but I enjoyed it for what it was. Co-main event, the third fight between these two. Mauricio Shogun Hua and Antonio Rogerio Noguera. These two first fought in 2005, they fought again in 2015, and now again in 2020. Um, I scored this fight for Noguera this time. I think Shogun won the other two fairly clearly. This time around, for, I gave Noguera the first and second round, Shogun the third. I That said, I don't think it's wrong to give Shogun the second. That was a close round. Uh, Little Nog retired after this. Uh, Little Nog's legacy is something really odd to kind of try and get your head around. Because he was a very, he was a, for the for a time, he was absolutely an elite level light heavyweight. Who happened to exist in the same division and promotion as two absolute all-time greats in Vanderlei Silva and the aforementioned Shogun Hua. But no, if you look at Noguera's resume, if you look at some of the guys he's beaten, Uh, I mean, Guy Metzger, Sakuraba, Nakamura a couple of times, Alistair Overeem, Dan Henderson. Beat Alistair Overeem twice. And, I mean, and that was, you know, that's just his, his pride run is, what, he debuts in pride, Guy Metzger beats Kazuhiro Nakamura, not an easy fight, beats Sakuraba, beats Alex Stiebling, beats Nakamura again, beats Overeem, beats Henderson, loses to Shogun, beats Overeem again, loses to Sokaju in what is still, I think, the biggest numerical upset in MMA history. I'd have to double-check that. Sokaju was a massive underdog. Pride folds. 
Uh, he goes on a good winning streak to get back to the UFC, wins a couple of fights in the UFC. I mean, again, if you take the totality of his uh, resume in, he has also wins over, you know, I mean, sure, Ortiz was past his prime at the time they fought, but he stopped him. Beat Rashad Evans. Uh, the man is a is going to be one of those guys who is perpetually underappreciated. In no small part because he never won a major title. Which sucks because he was good enough to. He just happened to run into guys who were just a hair better or the matchmaking didn't go his way in some cases. Or he hit the odd stumbling block. Uh, It happens. Uh, He's also going to forever kind of be in the shadow of his older brother, Big Nog, who, another legend. Noguera gets a lot of the accolades, but in some respects, Little Nog was a better fighter. Uh, Little Nog's boxing, his hands were much, much sharper than Noguera, who was a little bit flappy and flaily. Uh, So Little Nog, always going to be underappreciated. I thought he won this fight. I just, I do. Um, as for what's, and he retired after the, afterwards. I I think he'll probably stick to it. I mean, Big Nog is stuck to his retirement. And now he's kind of forced into it since he publicly admitted not all that long ago that he fought his entire career blind in his, I think his right eye. I rewatched some of his old fights in Pride and I don't know how we didn't realize that. Um, that eye, and again, I think it's his right, but don't hold me to that. It's visibly discolored. It's visibly a lighter shade. Like, it's visibly... You look at him and like, oh, yeah, you're prob- there's something up with that eye. Which, I mean, to be cre- to be fair to Big Nog, just helps further make him a legend for doing everything he did with one eye. Um, as for what's next for Shogun, I don't know. I, I, had, I had no interest in this fight. I don't really have a lot of interest in Shogun in 2020. Uh, I mean, I think he was technically ranked coming into this fight. He might have been like number fifteen, and that's no long. And uh, the the uh, the rankings here are odd. They don't list him here, but that might be because uh, they've been. The UFC will occasionally use the last week's ranking, like they will be updated, but there's a little bit of lag on that for the purposes of their promotion, so I imagine going into this event officially on the UFC's rankings, he was not there, but the week prior, he was. Um, <sighs> these light heavyweight rankings are a mess, just for the record, because I have to do this on occasion. John Jones is champion. Not even sure if that's still true. Uh, Dominic Reyes, number one. Okay, fair enough. Tiago Santos, number two. I don't agree. Jan Blahovich, number three. Blahovich should probably be two, if not number one. Just because he should be the next man up. Anderson, four. Sure. Teixeira, five. Sure. Smith, six. Again, I'm not as sold on that one, but sure. Gustafson at seven. I He's not fought in the division since he was beaten by... Uh, Anthony Smith and just fought at heavyweight he shouldn't be ranked the recently debuted Yuri Prochka uh, at number 8 seems a bit high for your debut fight but okay 
Uh, Vulcan Uzdemir at 9, Rakic at 10, Krylov 11, Serkinov 12, Johnny Walker 13, Ryan Span 14, Magomed on Kalaev 15. So much about that is just a joke. So I think Shogun probably like two weeks ago was ranked 15, and they just used that coming into this fight because the rest of these uh, these rankings are not going to be updated for the results of last night's event until I think tomorrow. So they haven't been updated yet. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not interested in Shogun fighting at this point. I'm just not. He's gonna keep trying, I imagine, but I I don't see that I don't see any of those fights in the top fifteen going well for him. Uh, speaking of Gustafson a little bit, next up Fabricio Verdum with an armbar of Gustafson. Oh, sorry, Shogun officially again was split twenty nine twenty eight twice for him, once for Noguera. Verdum armbars Alexander Gustafson two thirty of the first round. Um, what do you say about this? Couple of things. One, Gustafson came into this fight at 240. Little surprised he was that heavy. Um, I saw, I know there were some people who, you know, seemed to be okay, good. He's not screwing around in the 220s where, you know, he probably should just cut to 205 instead of fighting much heavier guys like this. He was, he was appropriately bigger than his 205 days. He was not out of... he, And he was not, you know, out of shape bigger. He looked like he deliberately put on a bit of mass there. Um, his footwork was okay, was pretty good. You know, and a lot of the original stuff he was doing initially, his hands were still fairly sharp. His movement was pretty good. Um, but Verdum... Went after a takedown, and I think I saw Luke Thomas mention this on Twitter. If it wasn't him, I apologize for the improper citation. A lot of the conventional wisdom and understanding of takedown defense changes dramatically when your opponent is willing to just pull you on top of them, even into potentially disadvantageous positions. For those of you who remember the fight between Damian Maya and Matt Brown... Damian Maya pulled Matt Brown basically into full mount, then swept him, got his back, and submitted him. If the guy you're, who's trying to take you down is that comfortable pulling you on top of them, and not, when I say on top of them, I don't mean pulling full guard. I mean, Verdum pulled Gustafson into... I mean, calling it half guard is technically true, but it really does a disservice to just how far forward Gustafson's weight was. It was not the, you know, hips low kind of level half guard. This was, I pull you on top and your hips are on my chest half guard. If you're willing to put yourself in that bad a spot because you are confident in your technique and your ability to continue motion and to scramble, sweep, reverse, whatever... The entire equation for how you have to stop that guy taking you down changes dramatically. You can't let their hands come together at all. Which is, again, if you watch people who have stopped Damian Maya successfully, that's what they have to do. It's not enough to just stop him from being on top of you. 
you have to keep his hands from coming together at all because he will pull you on top and then sweep or rever- and then sweep or come out the back or whatever. You have to stop that entire thing so much sooner because take down in this case does not mean I have to take you down and be on top. It means I have to take the action to the mat at all with any reasonable degree of control. Verdum got him down. Gustafson hit him a few times, but he slipped out the back. Uh, Gustafson tried to escape. Verdum just stuck to him like glue. Got his back, dragged him down, only got one hook in. Uh, and then switches, attacks the armbar. Gustafson defends a little bit. He switches to spiderweb, to the spiderweb control position. That's what Eddie Bravo calls it. Hammer fist to the face, which just makes the armbar academic at that point. Hammer fists, changes the grip, hugs the arm, leans back, done. I I saw the uh, Henry Gracie, I think, on Instagram. I don't know if he's put it on YouTube yet. Had kind of the Gracie breakdown of how this went. Uh, and those gentlemen obviously have significantly more insight than I do. And significantly more experience in this realm. They mentioned that it took the armbar attack lasted about a full minute. That's not something you see very much at heavyweight. They tend to be attack the position. If I don't get it, I either lose it badly or and the other guy counters or I choose to move on. Verdum committed, committed correct, you know, I mean Verdum's grappling is uh, Verdum is the best submission-oriented heavyweight fighter probably in MMA history. I mean, again, with all due respect to Big Nog, Verdum has submitted a much higher level of opposition. I mean, Noguera was submitting... Not to say that everyone Noguera submitted was a scrub at all. He submitted Krokop, not a scrub. He submitted... Um, oh, crap, who... I mean, I want to say Bob Sapp. I know he did submit Bob Sapp, but Bob Sapp does not go to my anti-scrub argument. Bob Sapp is... Noguera may have absorbed a tremendous amount of damage in that fight, but Bob Sapp was not near the technical fighter that uh, Noguera was. So let me have a look here through the guys that Noguera submitted. Um, Let's see... I mean, Gary Goodridge and Goodridge was pretty good. Coleman, same thing. Uh, he got Heath Herring in the Anaconda choke. Armbarred Dan Henderson, triangled semi Schilt. Uh, you know, those guys are not scrubs. But if you look at the guys Verdum has submitted, I'm sorry, Nogueira submitted uh, Tim Sylvia too. Hang on, Tim Sylvia, not a scrub. By contrast, we have Verdum, who has submitted Noguera. He ta- he broke his arm. Uh, submitted Alistair Overeem in their first fight. We're going to lose that trilogy. Uh, Alexander Emelianenko, who he you know, submitted. Uh, Fedor Emelianenko, who Noguera tried real hard to submit, but couldn't. Again, Noguera, he submitted. Cain uh, Velasquez, he submitted. Okay, uh, so I think if you look down the totality of Verdum's career, he uh, 
you might find that Noguera submitted had a greater number of submissions on his record. But the guys Verdum has tapped were just a lot better than most of the guys Noguera tapped. Again, Noguera has... I don't fault him for, you know, the Bob Sapp thing. He was the guy he was matched up with, and he finished him. Good on you. But, you know, some guys who just didn't really have the technical acumen on the ground, uh, just a better class of fighter has been submitted over the course of his career by Fabricio Verdum than the other way around. And not a knock on Noguera. Again, you fight the guys that are in front of you, and he won more often than not, so credit to him. The man is a legend. But if I'm ranking who's the best heavyweight submission artist in MMA history, the top man is Fabricio Verdum. This was a thing of beauty. Uh, Carla Esparza defeated Marina Rodriguez via split decision. Uh, A 29-28 each way and then a 30-27 for Esparza. I really think 30-27 for Esparza is wrong. I don't think you can give her the first round. Straight up. She gets a takedown and does nothing with it and gets cut up from the bottom. If you want to argue that Esparza wins rounds two and three, there's a very cogent argument there. I think I, I scored at 29-28 uh, for Rodriguez. That said, 29-28 for Esparza is a perfectly acceptable scorecard. 30-27 I do not think is. Um, Esparza just kind of keeps eking out these uninventful split decision wins. Um, I don't know that she'll ever get back to the title. Um, you know, if you really want to shut this down, if you if you really want to shut down her run as it currently currently stands, see about getting a rematch with her and Ioana, because Ioana's coming off of that war with Wiley Zhang. Uh, rematch those two, because their first fight was not competitive. If Asparza wants to make a serious case about being, about getting to the title. Joanna at straw weight has lost to a grand total of two people at straw weight. That's Rose Namajunas and Weili Zhang. And by the way, I thought she won the Zhang fight. So you could do that and just see how that rematch goes. Uh, Setback for Rodriguez, but at the same time, if you're as... I don't want to say bad about this particular skill. Rodriguez showed, for whatever reason, injury, tactical, whatever. In this fight, she did not demonstrate a great ability to regain her feet from full guard. She did a lot of closing the guard and holding on. And the ability to regain your feet after being taken down, in either against the cage or an open space, is a skill you kind of need. And if you're not there, I hope, put it this way, I hope she uses this as a learning experience. She's still a young woman. Uh, how old is she? Actually, I want to make sure I'm not lying there. She's 33. I take that back. She, if you're going to make a run, you've got to take this. I think you have to take this and learn from it very quickly. Um, if you, Again, if you're not going to do Esparza and uh, you want a rematch, there's Amanda Hibas floating out there. I think that would be a good fight. 
Uh, for Rodriguez, it's a setback. Um, and she probably can't afford too many of those. Straw weight is a... Women's straw weight is a very healthy division. It has plenty of fighters. It has plenty of fighters that are on the up and up. It's not a division. Women's flyweight is barely a division. Women's bantamweight is in desperate need of an influx of talent. Women's strawweight does not have those problems at all. Uh, if She can't really afford too many of these setbacks if she wants to make a run at the top. Uh, another light heavyweight fight. Paul Craig submitted Godzimurad and Tagulov with a triangle choke, 206 of the first. Um, and Tagulov just... Uh, had some good moments, got Craig down, landed some good stuff, but just wasn't mindful enough about some of his defense. Craig had the triangle position for quite some time. And in fact, I think at one point, uh, Antigulov got out of it and just put his head back in. Uh, then once the position was kind of locked, instead of trying to work his way through it, he just threw strikes and elbows. And I mean, he cut Craig open, but Nothing to damage him enough to loosen the hold and then eventually add to tap. Uh, Craig's kind of an interesting novelty guy, but I don't know what you'd do with any... I mean, this division is so weird, I don't know what you'd do with anybody. Maybe you do a rematch between Craig and Antigula, and uh, excuse me, Ankalaev. That's a thing you could maybe do. Uh, you have Ryan Spann and Johnny Walker who just signed a fight. He could fight the loser of that. Uh, maybe he wants a rematch with Shogun. I don't know that. Who, I don't know what you do with this division. Like, there's just—it's such a borderline dumpster fire of moving parts. As for Antigulov, that's three in a row. He's been finished in all of them. Um, I don't know that he'll get his walking papers because light heavyweight is what it is. But, uh. I think one more, and he will for sure. Welterweight Alex Oliveira defeated Peter Sabata via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Not much of note here. Um, Sabata just never got a way, found a way to deal with the kicking game of Oliveira, and he got kicked to pieces. Uh, kicking off the main card, Hamzat Shemaev defeated Reese McKee, uh, McKee via TKO, 309 of the first. Whoa! Total okay, total wipeout. I think Shemaev outstruck Reese McKee in this. Um, 92 some odd strikes to zero. Might even be more than that. Probably was more. Um, Shemaev now has the fastest turnaround victory in UFC history. He fought 10 days ago and won. Um, so discounting tournament guys who are one night who are one night fights. Uh, this is the this is the man. He. I think he absorbed less than five total strikes across both of his fights. Uh, just total, total wipeout performances. Um, there are some comparisons being drawn between him and Khabib. There is some truth to that, but... Um, they fight very differently on the feet when they strike. If you look at some of uh, Khamayev's non-UFC fights. A little bit more stance switchy. Um little bit more power, I think, in his stand-up striking than Nurmagomedov has. 
That said, I think Nurmagomedov's control game is much better than Shermayev's. Um, Shermayev, we have seen fight a guy who had one win in the UFC and a guy here making his debut. Khabib has done this, has done that to a radically higher level of opposition. Orders of magnitude. Can Khamayev keep that up across... Uh, I mean, look, again, if Khamayev goes on a big run, maybe we point to him as the next evolution of what Khabib does because Khamayev is a more complete striker. Khabib's striking serves the purpose of facilitating his grappling. Shemaev seems like he can fight on the feet on its own terms. So maybe we wind up finding that out. Maybe it turns out that against higher-level guys, his control game is not as good as Khabib's is against a similar level of opposition. Who knows? The man's in a very, very good spot right now. He has a lot of momentum coming off of these performances. Given how badly he smashed those two guys... I don't want to see him fighting someone in the top 15 necessarily. Uh, I think he mentioned he wanted to stay more at welterweight than middleweight. He's fought at both. So if we look at welterweight... Okay, I take that back. Because Neil Magny and Jeff Neal have signed to fight. Good fight, by the way. Maybe you give him the loser of that. Um, Potentially the winner. Um, If you want to be mean... Robbie Lawler is currently ranked 13th. Robbie Lawler, I think, would probably be a bit too big a hurdle if we're talking about looking this good. He, But if you want to give that man an acid test right away, you do have Mr. Lawler. But, I, I, again, I think either Magny or Neil. Because Magny's 14, Neil is 10. So if you assume those two are just going to kind of swap spots... Uh, him fighting that guy would be very legitimate. Vicente Luque is hanging out at 12. No respect uh, for Vicente Luque. And Eliza Zaleski Dos Santos is not ranked at all. Which uh, is kind of crap. So, again, uh, I, I do kind of take that back. If we're going to go somewhere between 13 and 15, maybe one of those guys. I think he also said he wouldn't mind fighting Mike Perry. Um, which would be another kind of a step up in competition from these two gentlemen. A higher profile fight, given that Perry is a somewhat notable figure, and could potentially set him up to fight someone in the top, but given how dominant he looked, they're going to have a hard time finding fights for this guy, I think. Not a lot of people... Anybody much far above him is not going to want is going to see too much risk. Uh, Anybody below him is going to be kind of like, you know, I don't think so. So, the option, point being, his options might be a touch limited, and I don't know how, and you might be rushing him, right? If you start throwing him in there with the top 15, that could very well be too much too soon. By the same token, Again, there's probably going to be limited matchmaking options given who's going to be willing to sign to fight that guy. Uh, as for the prelims, uh, Francisco Trinaldo defeated Jai Herbert via TKO 130 of the third. Um, first, a couple of things. First of all, Francisco Trinaldo still going strong at 41. 
uh, missed weight for this fight. His first time in his entire career doing so. I'm willing to give the man a little bit of the benefit given the, you know, the pandemic. And that he's never had this problem before. But at the age of 41, that cut to 155 might not be something he's really able to do all that much anymore. Just a possibility. Um, he had a bad... I think I had him down two rounds. Certainly the second. Um, or certainly the first. I can't remember. One of the rounds he very clearly lost. But he kind of gritted through it, landed an overhand left, and that was all she wrote. The big talking point coming out of this has been more the stoppage, or lack thereof. Trinaldo lands this left, and Herbert drops. He fades backward, he flops to his back, his neck is loose. He kind of comes up and has one hand extended, and if you didn't see the punch or the way he landed, you might think he's still in a somewhat position to defend himself. Uh, the referee did not, in this case it was Herb Dean, did not stop it. Trinaldo goes over and stands over this man with his fist cocked. Now, one of the... I'm not... I'm always willing to give refs a little bit of the benefit when it comes to the way guys fall if it's not always immediately apparent how unconscious some of them are. So, again, I'm... I think it was here, but... It's easy for me to armchair quarterback this as opposed to the guy in the inside inside the cage. So there's a degree there of I'm willing to err a little bit on the side of the official. The problem comes in this case when Trinaldo moves to stand over Mr. Herbert and Mr. Herbert does nothing to change his position. If the argument you want to make is, okay, he got knocked down, he fell badly, I'm not sure where he is now. If the other fighter moving to stand over you does not prompt something to change, you're done. I think that's very, very clear. And it wasn't in this case, and he landed a couple of punches to kind of prompt Herb to stop it. Um... So, a couple of things. One, bad non-stoppage. Straight up. I think if you look at the body of work from Herb Dean on balance, it is good. And it's very, very easy for us to remember the mistakes rather than the, you know, dozens, in his case, I assume, in his case, hundreds of times you got it right versus the times you got it wrong. I'm not, point being, I'm not trying to throw Herb under the bus in totality. This was a bad stoppage. I can think we can all say that fairly definitively. Commentary was calling for this fight to be stopped, and there was some audio that kind of got captured on the broadcast of Dan Hardy yelling at Herb Dean. I can appreciate in terms of especially Dan Hardy and Paul Felder, Former fighters, Felder's former status a little bit iffy. He might come back, he might not. Hardy, retired. I can appreciate their fervor. 
this is something that they did. This is something very, very close to their person. So I can appreciate the fervor. I can even appreciate, again, if you're Dan Hardy watching this live, looking at the ref and going, what are you doing? Your job is to protect the fighters. It is. I'm... If you are the broadcast official, uh, it's less clear that that's really a good look for you to be doing. So, again, not sure about that, but I can't understand it. Now, a few things, again, a few things have come out in the aftermath of this. One is Herb Dean kind of defending his decision-making process and defending his, you know, stopping it when he did, which I don't agree with. Uh, at all. I don't agree with him. I think he's mistaken here. One of the other things he said, though, and I think this is a valid point that needs to be discussed, the commentary team, again, both Felder and Dan Hardy were actually yelling, stop the fight. And one of the, and the point that Herb Dean raised was that actually interferes with the officials' ability to do their job. And I think that's a valid point. Especially under the current considerations. If you're in a full arena and there's enough noise that the referee cannot hear the commentators, I think it's less of an issue. If the referee can hear anyone say, stop the fight, they have to find out where that is coming from. Because if it's coming from a fighter's corner, that means they have to stop the fight. Well, if it's coming from the fighter's corner, who's on the receiving end? I mean, in theory, even if it comes from the uh, the fighter who... If a fighter's corner tell, says stop the fight, the referee stops the fight and that fighter loses. So if the referee can hear someone saying stop the fight they have to ascertain where that's coming from, which can take attention away from the action coming from the action in front of them. I think that's a valid point. I especially if we're talking about empty arenas here where corners where where the commentary team is essentially providing unintentional corner advice to the fighters as they're talking about the action in front of them. I mean, there was a bit in the main event, actually, where between rounds, I can't remember if it was one and two or two and three. I think it was two and three. Um, Darren Till complained to his corner about his knee being screwed, his right knee, after the sidekick from Whitaker. Commentary heard that. And when talking to each other about it, I think because John Gooden was your lead, uh, your lead color guy here, or you lead play-by-play, excuse me. He said he, he they went to a whisper because they didn't want to say loud enough for Robert Whitaker or his camp to hear that Darren Till's knee was compromised. So they are again they're aware of what's going on here with this and how they have to navigate that space legally and ethically is still kind of up in the air. So if you have commentators audibly to the referee saying stop the fight and the ref can't 
the ref has to figure out where that call for the stoppage is coming from. Because if it's coming from a corner, that has to be honored. If it's coming from anyone else, you give them the middle finger. You can have an opinion, but you have no functional say. So I point being, I do think that's a re- that is a valid point from Herb Dean when talking about this. I think the stoppage was bad. Straight up, plain and simple, bad stoppage. Um, one of the other things post-fight that came out of this, apparently the UFC will do a quote-unquote investigation into Dan Hardy's conduct. I think they're just going to try and figure out... They, they have to figure out what's appropriate for their commentators to do in this circumstance. And Much as I appreciate that, there is no investigation going on into Herb Dean. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that the man should be investigated and his license pulled... But there is no procedure in place, believe it or not, to address bad stoppages like this. There is no redress. There is no recourse. There is no review. There is no official system in place to address a late bad stoppage. Period. Apart from, you know, quote-unquote commission review. And if you want to believe in the value of commission review in these cases and the relative opacity thereof. At a minimum, that is not a valid point in this instance, because guess who regulated the UFC events here on Abu Dhabi? The UFC self-regulated. There is no oversight, there is no commission governing this. This was the UFC doing whatever they wanted. So, again, if you want to say, well, we think the commission should handle it, then I take issue with that, one, because commissions are, again, they are opaque. They are not transparent about what goes on. So I take issue with that. If you want to say it should still kind of be left up to the commissions, but you want more transparency and you think other systems should be in place, put forward your full proposal, and I think that's something we can discuss. Here there is no commission oversight. It's, it's, it just highlights the perpetual systemic issues. And I mean that in the truest sense of the word. There are actual issues within the system that we are still trying to hash out as a fan base, as, an, as the UFC as an organization, or as the sport more generally, comprised of the, you know, the regulatory bodies, the fighters, the promoters, and the fans, however you want to kind of qualify that amalgamation of people. So, all right, moving on. Jesse Ronson scored a pretty big upset, actually. He submitted Nicholas Dalby with a rear naked choke, 248 of the first. Hit a really nice straight left hand on Dalby that kind of set everything up. Uh, This was Ronson's return to the UFC. Um, Ronson fought in the UFC from 2003 to 2000 excuse me, 2013 to 2014. During that time, he went 0-3. He fought to three split decisions with the following people. Michel Prezeresh, Francisco Trinaldo, and Kevin Lee. There's not too many people in the history of the lightweight division that if you debuted them in 2013 and they were, you know, at the same relative level in 2013, that's going to beat those three guys. Maybe Tony, 
maybe Khabib. There's a real chance, though, at that particular point in time against those guys, they, there's an L in there somewhere for those two guys. He took all three of them to split decisions. Finally gets back in two th- now in 2020. Um, had to feel really good to get that, to get this win, man. Um, sucks for Dolby, who's a very interesting fighter to watch, but Ronson earned every bit of that. Took this fight on a, not straight up short notice, but fairly short. Uh, against a guy he was not supposed to beat, up a weight class, and pulled it out. You know what? Good for him, man. I applaud that. Heavyweight, Tom Aspinall defeated Jake Collier via TKO 45 seconds into the first round. Jake Collier, for those of you who might remember, used to fight at middleweight. Utterly unrecognizable up here, weighing 264 pounds. Um... Yeah, it looked nothing like how he used to look. Hadn't fought since November of 17 um, due to a combination of, I think, injury and drug test issues. Uh, So, yeah. uh, Good good performance from Aspinall, you know, who's a young, up-and-coming heavyweight, but, you know, Looked good against a guy who, not a real... I mean, don't get me wrong. Weight-wise, heavyweight for this fight. He was 264 pounds. Looked like nothing, Looked nowhere near to fighting shape. Even for a heavyweight fighter, Jake Collier looked out of shape. So, good for Aspinall. Uh, Movsar Evloev defeated Mike Grundy via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. I don't buy the 30-27s for Evloev which I think is how that's pronounced. Um, he nearly got finished with a Darce in the first round. Now, he escaped. And I think if I, you were to ask me, you know, who won which half of the round, sure, he won the second half. But I don't think he did enough to overcome that near finish. Uh, that said, rounds two and three, clearly his. Um, Ivloev is very good. I mean, he the, him getting out of that choke at all was... Borderline miraculous. 99% of humanity in that spot, and probably a giant, giant chunk of the UFC roster is dead to rights in that spot against Grundy. He figured a way out of it. Uh, Time to move Ivloev up, I think, a little bit in competition. Featherweight's a deep division, uh, and he's, I mean, he's still, you know, fairly young. He's 13-0, 3-0 in the UFC, but it, it point. I, I'm not saying get that man in the top 15, but let's step it up a little bit, yeah? He's probably ready for some more established names to fight. Um, at heavyweight, Tanner Bozer defeated Rafael Pessoa via TKO 236 of the second. Um, I don't remember a tremendous amount about this fight, but Bozer as a lighter, quick... Fast hands, good cardio, heavyweight is potentially a real force in that division. How high he can go, I don't know. Again, he's a little bit smaller, but he's 
he can fight to make that an advantage, and that will take him very far in a division, in, in specifically the heavyweight division. Um, Panny Kianzad defeated Betch Koheya via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. I don't know what to say about this. It wasn't a good fight. Um, yeah. Uh, welterweight Ramzan Amiv defeated Nicholas Stolz via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. Um, Ameev, also a good fighter. Um, little bit still needs to smooth out his transition game and a little bit raw in some respects, but he's long for the division. He's a very good wrestler. And he's a very, very good, you know, very, very competent, you know, good striker. He's kind of a problem. And kicking everything off, Nathaniel Wood defeated John Castaneda via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Uh, Wood just better everywhere. Kept a good pace. Nathaniel Wood kept a very good pace in this fight, actually. He closed with... He closed with a lot of strikes in this fight. He was very, very active. Um... Yeah, 131, I think, total strikes. Yeah, he landed 131 total. Oh, that's significant. No, that's just... Hang on. Okay, I I understand that uh, you know, the stats guys, what they do in real time, they know is not accurate, so they go back and they wind up redoing it. So this might not have been gone over again. But 131 significant strikes. He more than doubled his previous uh, high output, which was 60-something. So good for good rebound from Nathaniel Wood after the loss to John Dodson. Uh, alrighty. Yeah, that. so that was UFC on ESPN 14. Many, many thanks to everyone who followed along with my live coverage, who has read after the fact... I know it wasn't the greatest card in the world. It didn't have tr a huge amount of buzz, but it uh, it had a bit more than I thought it did as kind of that night wore on. So thank you to everyone for reading. Always appreciate you guys. Moving on. UFC on ESPN plus 31. Uh, this was supposed to be main evented by Holly Holm and Irene Aldana, which was... An odd choice to main event this card. I know Holm still has a bit of residual star power. And I know, and to be clear, I don't hate the fight. Aldana just had that big knockout win over Ketlin Vieja. Getting in there with Holly Holm, potentially giving her, you know, a, a big name to beat to get her into the title scene, potentially, given, you know, the state of women's bantamweight. I didn't hate the fight. Not sure it was, you know, true main event quality. Uh, that fight has fallen out. Uh, Irene Aldana tested positive for COVID. Uh, at least that's last I heard. So now in the main event, we have a three-round fight at middleweight between Derek Brunson and Edmund Shabazian. Shabazian has been tearing through the UFC. Came into the UFC undefeated, fought to a split decision with Darren Stewart. I thought he won it, but 
rough introduction to the UFC. He follows that up by, in the first round, stopping Charles Bird, submitting Jack Marshman, and not Ted kicking Brad Tavares. If Shabazian can beat Derek Brunson, look, Brunson is a flawed fighter. But in the UFC, he is very much a winning fighter. His UFC record is very much in the positive side of things. Um, out of curiosity, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 11 wins to just five losses. Um, oh, and those losses, by the way, Yoel Romero, Robert Whitaker, Anderson Silva, for the record, I thought he beat Silva, Jacare and Adesanya. So amongst that group, we have Romero, one of the best in the world, Whitaker, former champion, that was on his rise to the championship, Silva, Thought he won, former champion. Souza, one of the best middleweights in the world, especially at the time. And Adesanya, current champion and best middleweight in the world. The man doesn't lose to just whoever happens to be across the cage from him. You've got to be good to beat this guy. Uh, I do kind of like Shabazzian's chances here. Um, Brunson is... The man wins more than he loses by a Significant margin. But if you look at his performances and how he chooses to fight, he he's a little bit erratic. Um, sometimes he is relentlessly aggressive, recklessly. Sometimes he is very laid back. Sometimes he's kind of blending the two. Sometimes he doesn't want to take you down. He just wants to strike. Sometimes he wants to clinch and take you down. It's There's a degree of unknown to what he's going to do in the cage because he his style because how he chooses to implement his game plan can change so radically. I do still like Shabazzian here though. I I don't know that he'll ever become champion, but he's clearly a very very gifted fighter. Your co-main event, Joanne Calderwood. She's stepping in on somewhat short notice here. Jen- her opponent, Jennifer Maya, was supposed to fight uh, Viviane Araujo. Calderwood steps in after Araujo was... she test positive? Uh, yeah, either that or... Yeah, that's kind of what's been reported. So either that or she's just travel restricted. Either way. Joanne Calderwood was supposed to fight Valentina Shevchenko before Shevchenko suffered a knee injury. So Calderwood is risking a lot here. If she loses, that title shot goes bye-bye. Even in even in women's flyweight, which is barely a division. Um, on the plus side for her, Maya's coming off of a loss to Caitlin Chukagian. Maya has missed weight in her last two fights. That's kind of a big deal. Um, they might force Maya up to bantamweight if she can't get that under control. I like Calderwood here. I think she's going to... I think she keeps a good pace. I think she will be able to fight long. Uh, I did think Calderwood lost that fight with Andrea Lee. I, well, I scored it for Lee. Her last fight, but... 
I think Calderwood wins here, probably keeps her shot against Valentina, and then loses that rather definitively, given how much better Valentina is than that division. Uh, welterweight fight. Vicente Luque will fight Randy Brown. Good fight. Uh, Randy Brown never quite matured into what the UFC wanted him to. Um, he's on a two-fight winning streak. He's finished both Brian Barberina and Worley Alves, but... For those of you who might remember his debut, he came in with a fair bit of hype. Um, and just hasn't quite been able to really capitalize. He's got some wins, but he's suffered some pretty notable losses. And Vicente Luque is just criminally underappreciated in that welterweight division. He's lost a grand total of three times. One of those to Leon Edwards, who, you know, one of the three best welterweights in the world, one of them to Stephen Thompson. Uh, I think Luque probably wins here, but uh, yeah, I'm picking Luque. A lightweight fight, Lando Venata and Bobby Green are having a rematch. Hot dog. These two fought to a draw back in 2017. Uh, that I kind of, I agreed with the draw, there was a point deduction in that fight. I'm going to pick Venata, but these two are two very weird fighters. So, who knows? And kicking off the main card, Kevin Holland will fight Trevin Giles. Let's see. Holland beat Anthony Hernandez. His previous fight. He looked pretty good in that fight, actually. Whereas Giles, he had that split fight with James Krause that I kind of thought he, I kind of, not only did I think he lost, I thought the scoring in that was atrocious. From, yeah, it was UFC 247. Yeah, I'll pick Kevin Holland here, but Holland's been a little bit hit and miss too. Uh, on the prelims, Frankie Signs will fight Jonathan Martinez. Not a bad fight there. Light uh, bantamweight. Bantamweight delivers. Signs coming off of a loss to Chito Vera, whereas Martinez lost to Andre Ewell. It was a close fight though. It was a time I would have picked Signs without thinking too much about it, but that's past. I think I'm going to go with Martinez actually. Light heavyweight fight between Ed Herman and Gerald Mershart. I have no idea what I could possibly say about this fight. Ed Herman is still fighting in the UFC in 2020. That's what I can say about this fight. I'm going to pick Mershart. Um, I know the man's been a little bit up and down in the UFC, but I kind of think this fight favors him stylistically. Bantamweight fight between Ray Borg and Nathan Maness. I'll pick Borg there. I mean, Borg is coming off of that loss to Simone, but uh, Borg's a tough out, and Maness is making his debut. Uh, Eric Spicely will fight Marcus Perez. That's an interesting fight. Not all that interesting, but, you know, I mean, if you're me, it's interesting. Perez has been up and down in the UFC. 
Um, Spicely, very good jiu-jitsu practitioner. Been on for over a year. Because uh, he last lost to Duran Wynn, but he had some moments in that fight. I'm going to go with Spicely. Uh, Jamal Emmers will fight Timur Valiev. Valiev's back! Yeah! Uh, that That's not sarcastic on my part, actually. I... Or finally in the UFC, sorry. I've watched a fair bit of Timur Valiev stuff uh, from his World Series of Fighting run, you know, now through the Professional Fighters League. Uh, Valiev's pretty legit. Uh, I'm excited to see him in the UFC. And then uh, Luke Sanders will fight Chris Gutierrez. Luke Sanders. Beat Hennon Barrow his last time out, but that was well over a year ago, February of 19. Wonder what caused that. Ah, Luke Sanders. You remember he used to date Becky Lynch? She was actually cage-side for a couple of his fights. Uh, how's Gutierrez? Let's see. Oh, he TKO'd Vin Oh, I remember that. He stopped when he stopped Vince Morales in his last bout with leg kicks. I'm going to pick Gutierrez, actually. Wouldn't be shocked if Sanders won, but I'm going to lean Gutierrez. All right. That is UFC on ESPN Plus 31. I will have coverage this Saturday in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania, so please, as always, stop by, say hello, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies. I don't care. Uh, let us all, you know, just let everybody know where we are. Um, okay. Minor, there's no big news, so we're just going to do some kind of minor odds and ends here. Um, Khabib Nurmagomedov is apparently training again. He released a statement uh, related to the passing of his father. Uh, you can find that if you're interested in reading it. Uh, I don't. I'm still not sure if the you know potential September fight with Gagey will go through, but because there's still a lot to kind of hash out there. But he has broken his silence. Is uh, training again a little bit, so. We'll be keeping our eye on that. And again, last I've heard, the they are still penciled in for that September. Or is it August? No, I have to figure that out. Because I don't want to sound like a complete jackass. I think there. I think it was 253. No, not 253. Yeah, sorry, 253. So that would be uh, September 19th. So, still expected to be there, kind of penciled in, but I imagine, again, I, after the death of a parent, I imagine, you know, there's a lot of kind of, still kind of being figured out on the fly if you're Khabib. Uh, let's see, other odds and ends. Um, Bellator was back in action this uh, last Friday. Typical Bellator card. Um, God. They have Mike Goldberg as one of their commentators. I don't know if any of you might remember that. Boy, is he bad. Uh, just... Just so bad. 
Um, Sergio Pettis got a win in the main event. Uh, another decision. Uh, I don't know if they're gonna what they're gonna be able to do with Pettis in that. And I mean, look, Bellator was just kind of trying to see what their events might look like, what their roster capabilities are, and whatnot with the pandemic. The show went off. Uh, so, kudos on that respect. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know if this qualifies or not. Yeah, sure. It'll make Mark happy. Hi, Mark. If you're listening. Um, DAZN, the, the sports streaming uh, entity, announced recently that they had signed for uh, to carry bare-knuckle boxing, the bare-knuckle fighting championship, or whatever they call themselves. Uh, I don't care much for bare knuckle, not because I'm opposed to violence or, uh, I, I don't have some moral objection to bare knuckle boxing. I don't think the fights are good, so I don't watch. Now that, that's kind of my take on that. Um, DAZN is really hard up for content. They are really hard up for content, so they're kind of signing whoever they can. Um, they're paying a lot of money to a bunch of boxers right now who are not fighting because of the pandemic. And I don't blame them. Uh, they were pretty clearly hoping to lure in bigger, more well-known sports properties, so they kind of did the combat sports thing as a, hey, we're here, proof of concept. And then no other sports leagues were willing to get on board with them. <laughs> so they're just kind of trying to find... They're trying to find content right now. Uh, the fact that they have gone from signing, you know, I think they had Bellator. I don't know if they still do or not. Um, but, you know, going from Bellator, a, you know, probably the second, probably the number two MMA promotion, certainly in the United States, probably in the world, depending on how you feel about one, I guess. Or, you know, being the exclusive home of Anthony Joshua and... Canelo Alvarez to now signing Bare Knuckle um, they're going the wrong way in terms of properties they are signing to their service um, the zone has some pretty serious problems as far as that goes and I don't know how much that's gonna uh, I don't know how much longer they'll be around there's so many streaming services now and I think I think the market is starting to reject a lot of them. Um, there's a lot of competition in niche spaces, which DAZN occupies. You have the Fight TV app, which is kind of in that same space, but Fight TV is willing to carry pro wrestling and some of the garbage, and I mean garbage, associated with that because they have a bunch of garbage wrestling. And again, I don't mean that professional wrestling is garbage, they have stuff like Joey Janela's Garbage Party Weekend. They have literal garbage wrestling. Some of them, and to be fair, they have good wrestling. I think when Josh Barnett's Bloodsport is on, it's on the Fight app. And they, so they, they're willing to carry a lot of stuff, but you're seeing some competition in even niche spaces. Uh, the fact that every major... Uh, television network is now trying to have a streaming service. Uh, I think 
uh, I think NBC's Peacock service launched this last week and is nothing but trying to sell you crap. I think they have a free version, right? Like, you can be there for free, but we're only going to give you a few episodes of each show, and for most of the stuff, you have to pay us. I think the market has had its fill of streaming services like that. I've said this before. I think the future of streaming is going to be the cable TV bundling model. If you get places together and say, okay, for one low monthly rate, we'll give you access to these five streaming platforms. So, again, ESP, uh, Disney, because these are all Disney properties, has one where you get Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Hulu. So imagine you had some other property that said, okay, we'll give you all those plus plus Netflix, plus, I don't know, pick one other one, Uh, Shudder. Or if Amazon Prime is able to kind of mesh with something else. Like, that's where the future of that particular, of streaming is going to be. It's not going to be what we see now, where everyone's trying to charge you five bucks a month for it. That is not sustainable. The market is rejecting it. And I think DAZN is going to be a casualty of that. I think you're going to get better sports streaming services. And I think it's going to wind up being a cautionary tale. Uh, what other minor notes did we have? Um, again, a few fights got made. I think I've touched on them already. Again, the, the Jeff Neal, uh, Neil Magny fight. Uh, there's not a lot of new fights that have been announced recently. The UFC right now is kind of doing bulk announcements. Um, some interesting data on how much the pandemic has affected the sport of mixed martial arts, actually. If you look at how many, how badly it's affected it, there's some, again, there's some graph material out there and some analytics done on the just number of MMA events done in 2019 versus 2020. And it is a huge number lower. Uh, pretty significant. So I'm not entirely again, I'm not entirely sure how that plays into you know, what that's going to wind up meaning if and when things start moving towards normalcy again. But I know a few other sports are trying to come back. I think the NBA has started kind of has started trying sort of implementing that. Uh, Major League Baseball, I think, had opening night uh, this last week or so. And they're trying. God bless them. I don't know how well that's going to work out. Um, again, the UFC can get away with it because of the structure of both their business and the logistics. It's less clear to me how the NBA is really going to manage this, especially if... Again, Florida at the moment seems to actually be trending a bit more down instead of up. But you get another major surge that lasts for a month, they might shut down again. And that might be, to be fair, that might also be the appropriate call given uh, certain considerations that in the future that we don't all that we don't know about right now. But they're making an effort. And I'm just, I'm not sure how well it's going to go. But we'll see. The the appetite for sports is certainly there right now. Uh, 
I mean, it always is, but it does seem to be pretty high at the moment. So we'll see what that means going forward, how that all plays out. Um, I think that's all I had as far as you know the kind of odds and ends thing goes. So let me check Twitter real, real fast and let's see if anything crazy has happened in the MMA space. That doesn't look like anything too crazy has happened. So let's go ahead and get out of here with some plugs. Uh, you can find me this particular week. Uh, I don't think I have any other... I probably do, but I'm... Uh, there's a few... Sorry, this, my podcast schedule has been shifted around a little bit recently. Uh, let's see, today's the 26th. Okay, so for the upcoming week, no, I don't think I have any major podcasts scheduled. I do have some in the upcoming weeks, though. On the Starting in August, on the 3rd, Mark and I have a review of uh, the anime series Keep Your Hands Off Isaacin on the 10th, uh, so a week later. We'll be doing a live reaction to me watching the Kentucky Fried movie, which I did not know was a thing. So we'll be doing that, and then, uh, let's see, there's a few other things. So I, August is going to be a busy month for me. Uh, the rest of this month, again, I don't think I have anything major podcast related. You can find me, uh, my review of the latest MLW Underground episode is up. They're just re-airing their old show. So you can find that in the Wrestling Zone of 411 Mania and, yeah, coverage on Saturday, and I'll be back here next week. We'll have a review of UFC on ESPN Plus 31, and we will have a review, or excuse me, a preview of UFC on ESPN Plus 32, which we don't even have a full bout order for yet. Uh... There are some interesting fights on that card. Derek Lewis and Alexi Olenek should be... If it doesn't go long, it will be enjoyable crazy. Uh, Chris Weidman is fighting Omari Akhmedov. Benil Daryush and Scott Holtzman is a really good lightweight fight. Um, so yeah, There's a few fights there. We'll have to see if we can get a finalized bout order over the next week, but uh, hopefully we do. I'll be back next week for the full rundown. Until then, thank you all again. Thank you for the likes, comments, subscriptions. We're, uh, you know the drill. I'll go over it more in detail next time. I apologize. Normally I go into more detail. Thank you uh, for all of your reviews, all of your support, all of your subscriptions, all of your shares. Let people know about the show. If you know anyone you think would enjoy it, please tell them. If you know people you think would hate it, but you just want to piss them off, please. Let tell them to listen to it. I will take a quick. I will take that. And if you're listening to this because someone thought it would piss you off, I hope I didn't piss you off too much. Uh, just be mad at your friend slash enemy. But I thank you for listening. I don't really care how you came here. So, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. As usual, stay safe out there. It's crazy, and continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>